Hello and welcome to the Education Marketer Podcast. For higher ed, personalization is a battleground of expectations. Organizations like Amazon and TikTok are placed on a pedestal. But the reality for universities is that it's not an equal playing field. Today, I'm joined by Toby Margetts, digital experience expert, and Judy Bressel, chief product officer at Squiz. We cover how generative AI is transforming personalized content and frameworks for marketing personalization in 2023. Let's get on with the show. When we talk about personalization, often the kind of usual suspects crop up. We, we talk about TikTok, we talk about Spotify, Amazon, Netflix, who are these kind of um, masters of personalization. Mm. And they're obviously these sort of hugely uh, successful companies. They're massive companies that have enormous budgets to do uh, really great stuff with. Um, and I often kind of think we, we end up in HE trying to compare ourselves and what we're doing with these organizations. Um, which can be a little bit tricky because we often don't have the same budgets as, as these organizations and we don't have the same amount of time and ability to, in, to invest that time into personalization. Um, so I often think kind of comparing HE to those uh, can be, as I say, a little bit, little bit tricky or a little bit unhelpful. Um, I think also they tend to be kind of based on a, on a model of um, you sort of, you liked that because you watched it on Netflix um, or you listened to it on Spotify or you bought it on Amazon. Um, therefore, there's a good chance you will um, like this movie, um, which actually is at its kind of core, a very kind of simple thing. And that's why I think the success of those kind of companies is a little bit easier to understand versus when we kind of compare that to an HE context. HE is definitely um, a lot more complex and the user journeys that we have in HE is a, is a lot more complex. And so I think it's very difficult to kind of con- compare those two things and, and people get a little bit caught up and think, well, you know, it's when I sit down in the evening and I watch a, a movie on Netflix or I get something recommended to me, you know, that's a really nice experience. Like, why can't we kind of pop in that mirror that in the, in the HE world? And the answer really is that it's, it's a lot more complex in, in the HE world and it's not as kind of consumption led the the kind of the, the view of the movie or the listening of the song or the purchase of something on Amazon that's very much the the end goal but actually mm. with a you know getting a user to interact with a piece of content although that's great if it's a bit of content we want them to interact with it's not necessarily the the end goal the end goal tends to be you know we want an, an enrollment or we want an application and that's a kind of a much slower burn process that involves a lot more kind of touch points throughout the uh throughout the process, what should HEB be aiming for? Simplifying the process is definitely a good thing. Having a system whereby you can segment your users in a very kind of simple and, and high level way, and then be able to deliver them content that is relevant to that particular segment. That is ultimately what we're aiming for. And I'm sure we'll kind of get into that in a little bit more detail around exactly how we do that. Um, but there are uh, loads of kind of points there, I think, around keeping that simple, not trying to kind of run before you can walk. Um, that's where we see clients, I think, getting tripped up is where they try and do too much too quickly. Not wanting to become a, a TikTok overnight, that's definitely a, an aspiration I think HE should have. Um, and yeah, as I say, kind of an appreciation that the world of HE is actually very, very different from the world of, um, yeah, watching a movie or, or listening to a song on Spotify. I think you're absolutely right. Because when you you go to these platforms, like whether it's Amazon or, or Netflix, you, the, the use case is quite narrow. So you, your user, you're going shopping, you know, you, you purchase something, you get recommendations. It's definitely not that transactional on a university website. And similarly with Netflix, it's, you, you go on the contents just there. There's, there's yeah. nothing, no kind of input. You just kind of see what's, what's available, um, uh, to Absolutely. you and your, 
your point about segments is an important one because I think like the kind of like similar to the kind of Netflix audience, your kind of viewers are, or your kind of users, your university website are quite um, segmented. Your, your audiences are huge. So like nailing that criteria and who you're, you're talking to, just be, when you use personalization, you don't necessarily have to use it as an umbrella sort of thing, do you? You, you can go, right, well, initially we're going to focus on this part or this area of the website to deliver a more personalized experience rather than you know, like you said, going like the full aspirational route and going like hundred percent straight from the, from the go. Cause this is a learning curve, isn't it? It's, it's, it's quite a lot to get your head around. It, it really is. Yeah. It's, it's a really good point as well. Around HE, you have very kind of distinct audience types as well. You know, you've got loads of people ranging from undergraduates to postgraduates to internal staff to board members, and they all want extremely different things out of uh, an HE experience. Conversely, if you look at kind of Netflix or Spotify, for example, the, the target audience is like everyone, everyone listens to, to music, everyone watches movies, and it doesn't actually really matter too much about the personal preferences. What mm. we've got is just a system where we have um, a content item, so a movie or a song that is stuffed full of metadata. Uh, and all we're then doing is if somebody listens to that song or watches that movie, we then just show them other things which have similar types of metadata. and. If we do that well, that's job done. That's a, that's a win. That, that's kind of all we want. We don't really have to go beyond that. We don't have to kind of convert somebody. We don't have to um, keep them warm throughout a process. We don't have to get them in for an open day. We don't have to get them downloading a prospectus. Um, we're not asking them to commit, you know, three or four years of their life and to spend tens of thousands of pounds doing something. It's, it's a very kind of different world that we're living in. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do that, that word transactional, I think you use, Carl, is, is a really important one there. Um, and so, yeah, for, for HE, I definitely think breaking it down, as you mentioned, into kind of segments from an, from an audience point of view, but also focusing on very specific parts of the user journey that a user will go through when interacting with an HE institution um, is is vital. Uh, otherwise, it just gets very, very overwhelming very, very quickly. Yeah. Can you imagine if Netflix had to get people to a physical location, how, uh, <laughs> how different that model would be? I mean, yeah. they are trying like... Um, physical stores and stuff like that to kind of broaden that, uh, that remit. And, you know, even if you look at some of Disney plus, I think they're working on integrations with their, uh, Disney plus subscription theme parks. So there is maybe some crossover for them in the future, but it's a vastly different question and ballpark, isn't it? So it is, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to, to keep a close eye on that when they, when they get into that perhaps more physical world and, and how they deal with personalization then, because as I said, it, it does become a completely different ball game. Um, not that I don't doubt they'll be able to do it, given the, the amount of budgets they work with and the time that they commit for things like personalization. Um, so yeah, that could be a, a very interesting watch this space one. Yeah, I don't think money is going to be an issue for them somehow. Um, Julie, I, I'm just thinking of ways in here for, for higher education providers. And you know, we've been talking a lot recently about AI and how this can almost offer this 100% hyper-personalized experience. You type into these chatbots, you integrate them with your own sort of institutional data and you get these really deep sort of conversational abilities that you just couldn't have in the past. Um, we've mentioned this in a previous episode, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper here in the context of personalization. Um, how could a, a uni utilize some of this, you know, this technology and those personalization efforts? Is it an avenue they should be going down? Is it like a starting point? Was it maybe something that comes a bit later in the journey? Yeah, so a lot of starting points, you really want to look at those kind of core activities that you're, you're, you're kind of caring about the universities. 
Uh, and there are a couple of these earlier ones that can really skyrocket with successful web personalization. So the common one really is enrollment. So really around how do we attract more students? And then the second one is research. So finding the right research partners, um, which will, you know, get you additional funding, the, the reputation, talent development, et cetera. So these are kind of these really early ones that you can do um, and that, that where AI can really kind of supercharge that web personalization through, you know, the automating, the tailored outreach recommendations for relevant courses, uh, research materials, articles, events, news, all, all of the things based on users' profile that's building up over time and their past behavior. So really getting them more engaged. You mentioned chatbots. So that's another really big area that AI can be really impactful. So providing personalized, instant, efficient interactions. Uh, and it goes beyond just, you know, asking for help. So it's, you know, application assistance, like really detailed application assistance on the little bit that they're stuck at to help them get across the line. Uh, virtual campus tours is another big one. So, you know, a lot of university students really want to understand, you know, what is my university experience going to look like? So being able to have a chatbot that can talk you through those, those virtual campus tours, uh, if getting there in person isn't working, or if they're a remote student, looking at, you know, what does your university experience actually look like? Uh, yeah, so there's, they're kind of the really early steps that, that AI can, we know that AI can really kind of supercharge with. There's a few universities who are kind of exploring in this area as well. Um, so RMIT here in Australia is using a lot of predictive analytics around that student success and offer, uh, offering personalized responses. Uh, Cambridge College um, is doing a lot around the outreach as well as Bryant University as well. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is open university. So open university is obviously online only, uh, and it's got a lot of AI around that enrollment side of things. So around mm -hmm. identifying relevant courses and related courses and keeping the, the students just sort of on that continuous learning journey with the, the smaller, um, the smaller piecemeal, uh, piece courses as well. It's pretty interesting what they're doing there. So with, with open universities, that's this is lifelong learning, isn't it? So I imagine, yes. does that engine kick in once a student's completed a program and then they get recommendations for further skills? Yeah, for further skills, you can see different pathways that you can take. Um, it ties it into careers as well. So, you know, if you're trying to get towards a specific career goal or something, you know, here are the, it can really personalize the different courses that can really help you achieve what you're looking for. It's, it's interesting. There's a, a few um, other areas I noticed just happened across the other day actually and you know i found quite quite interesting so um a a platform i think it's quite large in australia the ambassador platform kind of built around like peer-to-peer -peer, um yeah. very common on university websites in in your part of the world um they are looking at the idea of an ai powered ambassador which i just find you know fascinating really yeah. um so the whole thing's sort of built on uh, a, kind of, a kind of model underneath it but then it has the training day from like the institution um to to inform its responses now when you think peer-to-peer -peer is usually about that really deep human interaction um you know throwing in those sort of ai nuances i think it's, it's, it's quite interesting because you can kind of get that really fast response to to students you do it through an interface that they're used to using there's other implications around that like how does a young person respond to an ai version they expect different things from it um but you know actually seeing that you know, you, you discuss here like learning sort of applications. We're seeing it move over into those 
deeply personalized experience with like one-to-one student student chats i don't think there's any area that this this cannot potentially touch in the future right yeah and i think there's wonder under interactions is where it's going to get more value over time so you Mm. know you start quite broad but when you get that one-to-one interaction that can help them with either you know there's a friction point in maybe an application progress or they just want to know the answer to a question to help them get to the next stage in their journey that immediate one-to-one personalized response is is what they're going to get and and really what what helps them get over that sort of hump into the next stage of what or where they want to go um i know when i was enrolling in university a few years ago i was doing my masters and i had to sit on the phone for 20 minutes for, to wait you know on hold to get the answer to a question around a, mm. a payment i was having with and you know that wasn't great but if i could have got the answer instantly personalized with i understand you know here is the financial process you need to go through um, that would have been a, a much better experience, and I would probably be relating that story now because it would have been, wouldn't have even hit my memory. No, that's it, isn't it? Well, I guess the yeah. university gets some the notice because you've just reiterated it there. But yeah, like why why would you even mention it? Um, because it's just something you you as transactional it would have would have been yeah. done. Um, it's interesting if people are thinking about this and in, in terms of like incorporating AI into this use, like this customer service approach. Um, one stat that I found really interesting is that we 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 worry about the the personal touch, the human touch, and having that you know, high value kind of human driven content always for, for students. But actually, there was a, a recent piece of data published by the Keystone Education Group that shows that students value a fast response more than a quality answer. Which I know sounds really ridiculous, like oh, what the content's low quality. Well, there's a, there's actually a balance. So there seems to be this preference for speed over a deep um answer they, they're happy to wait a little bit for the deep answer if that question can be triaged so for me that seems like a bit of a quick win there for using ai um, related chatbots yeah and i think that tracks with everything else we know around web behavior with attention spans are getting smaller people's patience for slow loading websites is getting less i think mm. A quote I used to use, I think it was 54% of people used to leave if a website took more than three seconds. And now it's yeah. like 80 something. No one's got any patience for anything these days. And sometimes you just need that surface level answer to get you to the next bit. Um, you don't need a detailed, you know, conversation with someone. It's just, just give me the answer. Everyone's very yeah. impatient. Is- yeah. Always, always be interacting. Um, Toby, I want to pick up on a few more examples from, from you. Um, you, you alluded in like in your opening to some of the, the the examples we wheel out like Amazon and, and TikTok and these incredible sort of pedestal-based examples. Um, I'd like to bring that down into the real a little bit. And I know because you work in UX, you've got some more sort of practical sort of in, within reach, like aspirational examples for people. Do you want to take us through what some of those are and what the lessons can be? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I think actually just, just before I do that, there's one example I wanted to bring up, which isn't obviously one of ours, um, which is Amazon. But actually, it's kind of a negative example and just an example mm. of how, even though we put these kind of organizations on a bit of a pedestal and they do do incredible stuff, um, I'm, I'm sure you, you maybe um, have heard it before. There was a sort of famous tweet um, a while ago now related to Amazon. It was very funny. It was a, a woman who I think had bought a, a toilet seat from, from Amazon and then proceeded mm. to kind of get an influx of email comms um, and recommendations about, you know, try this toilet seat, try that toilet seat, as if she was some kind of toilet seat connoisseur. Um, (laughs) That's a really nice sort of um, amusing example, though, of how 
actually you can kind of get this wrong if you don't understand the kind of nuances of, of exactly what you're doing. And, and the obvious point there is that, you know, people buy a toilet seat and it tends to be a, a one-off purchase and, and, you know, you don't buy loads of toilet seats. You just, you just don't. Um, and the ability for their kind of model to understand that, at least when this tweet was written, uh, wasn't, wasn't quite there. And that then leads to this slightly jarring experience. Um, so yeah, even, even though, uh, these kind of companies have buckets, uh, of money and, and spend huge amounts on their algorithms, it is still possible to get it wrong, which does kind of highlight how difficult it is. Um, but yeah, on, on that kind of front, um, to talk about a few, uh, kind of closer to home examples, I guess, um, it'd be remiss of me not to talk about, uh, certainly one of, one of our own. Uh, one that I really like um, is UTAS, University of Tasmania. Um, we've built them kind of a little personalization uh, or customization panel, uh, which you can go, go and check out. Um, it's actually really simple, um, which is definitely the place to, to start, um, but, it, but it works really well. Um, and the, the premise is very simple. You, uh, when you land on the site, you can open up a little panel um, and you can self-select a few options. So you can say, um, I'm an undergraduate or I'm a postgraduate or I'm a research student or um, I'm just interested in the university. A few different options in there. Yeah. Um, you also self-select um, whether you're an international student or not. Um, and making those selections then gives you some very kind of subtle elements of personalization throughout the site where different component, uh, different yeah, components will appear within the homepage and, and deeper into the site that are then more relevant to that particular person. So a good example of that is on the homepage. Uh, UTAS have kind of a, like a student stories uh, section, which is kind of what it sounds like. It's a series of stories where uh, students are talking about their experience of being at the university. Um, now, obviously, if you are um, a prospective student coming from China and you're an undergraduate, it's going to be a lot more interesting and relevant to you if you could see other uh, international students who are undergraduates, if they're Chinese, even better. I've got someone that, you know, really reflects what I'm trying to do and I can then that that stuff will really, really resonate with me. If I'm a sort of domestic undergraduate and I'm seeing stories of international postgraduates, that to me is not quite right. You know, that doesn't reflect the experience that I'm hoping at the university. Um, and a one size fits all approach can't really cope with that. You've kind of got to go, oh, look, we've got a, we've got a plan for every conceivable user type that we might have. So, you know, let's put four or five different ones from different areas in, and that then becomes a little bit difficult to, to kind of wade through. Um, so yeah, that's one example of, um, a really nice kind of subtle, subtle piece of personalization. And I do think that's where personalization tends to be most effective when it is quite subtle, when you almost don't really kind of notice it happening in the background. That to me is where, where it really kind of works well and also fits in with, with another point I wanted to make about, um, kind of research and, and really doing your research, um, before you kind of implement any form of personalization. So in order to do effective personalization, you have to know a lot about your audience types. You have to know what they want. Of course, there are similarities across the kind of world of HE in terms of what, what students want, but actually there are also subtle differences and, and not every kind of student um, base is the same. Not every university has exactly the same types of audiences. They all want slightly different things. It might be, you know, based on where the university is in the world, loads of different factors that kind of influence exactly what a student is looking for. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting thing, how if you can get a really deep, solid understanding of what it is exactly your users want, you can then use that to do some really insightful things with personalization. These guys worked out that actually, yeah, there's this kind of idea of um, psychological urgency and fear of missing out that, that is created amongst the kind of undergraduate audience base. And so they kind of played on that a little bit, um, but at a really kind of simple level. There are plenty of examples of universities doing personalization where, for example, they've just 
segmented their user base into, let's say, undergraduate and postgraduate. And they'll realize things like undergraduates are far more likely to want to see imagery related to maybe the campus um, or the student union or other facilities like that, because it's, you know, that, that's at that age, that's the sort of thing they're looking for. Postgraduate may be less interested in, in those kind of things. And so they want to see perhaps different types of imagery. And that's a really like super, super simple way of, of doing some personalization, simply changing the imagery based on a very kind of large and, and high level uh, demographic. But again, it's little wins like that and little subtle wins, which, which add up to, to kind of uh, be big wins overall, I think. Yeah. And I think your, um, your emphasis here, and I think what we often forget is before we dive into personalization tools, there is that very valuable step before it, isn't it? Like we're essentially working out what the audience wants. Um, so you said there, like you've identified that, what that fear, if you want it, is the word you use there, that, that kind of desire, um, and then you design those experiences around that and then also how that links into like not more aspirational content or like content marketing programs, but the real sort of basic hygiene kind of content approach. So, you know, what does a UG audience need to see? What does a postgraduate audience need to see? Love the idea of personalization being used to create dynamic content around the use of components. Um, we often view web pages like these static assets, don't we? When we update them and, you know, we keep the content fresh, but you know, the, 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 the ability to actually identify who you are, self-identify, um, so you're not being intrusive, your data collection or anything like that. And then page actually updates to reflect that content you want to see, whether that's imagery, almost like holding up a mirror to the user to make them feel like they're at home. So they're therefore more likely to feel like they're connected, more likely mm -hmm. to make actions and yeah, yeah. The, the, the fear of missing out thing is great as well. I love that. Um, like updating your CTA depended on how many times someone revisits a page. It, it would yeah. seem like a really basic metric, but I guess if someone keeps coming back to a page, they're clearly in the market for that decision, aren't they? Absolutely. Yeah. I think they've possibly taken a bit of inspiration there from like the travel sector. You, you often see it when you're trying to book a hotel yeah. or something like that. You know, you come to a, to a webpage to, to book a hotel, you maybe don't commit right there and then then the next time you come back you'll see oh you know the, the, these are flying off the shelf you know there's only two rooms left and whether or not they might be slightly playing with the truth um it's hard to say but actually what it does it creates that sense of scarcity and, and urgency which then you know makes you more likely to to want to commit to uh, to converting there and then but yeah just, just kind of one final thing Carl, you, you mentioned something there which i think is is super super important um and it's actually just asking yourself the question um so if, if i'm a head of marketing at a university and I ask myself the question, what do my undergraduates actually want? Um, if you don't have a good answer to that question, um, then you're not in a great place to be able to start doing personalization. You need to have a really good solid understanding of actually what your undergraduates want, what your postgraduates want, what your research students want, what your PhD students want, all of those different things. If you don't actually know the answer to what do they want, you're going to have a really, really tough time guessing at what kind of content you should be showing them. Um, the appropriate point um and we don't want to be in a position where we're guessing we want to be in a position where we've got data and insight to be able to to kind of back all of that stuff up um so yeah another really kind of key part and, and it's probably something i'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later on particularly when it comes to ai is around how that can probably help us make better sense of that data um to then then help us do better personalization i think i think that's going to be a, a key thing so let's let's build on that then because you've you kind of gave us a nice sort of avenue into it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the 
common challenges that you come up against when working with universities over personalization so for instance when you're when you're consulting when you're working on ux based projects are there any common issues that come up you know what ways have you, you know, put in place in the past to get around those yeah so i think we've definitely touched on a couple already um and that is one not knowing your audience well enough i think um it's it's not an uncommon occurrence to kind of sit in a room with with people who really excited about the prospect of, of doing some personalization but then getting very quickly into the kind of um the, the the what and the solution and kind of going oh you know we could do this and we've got some really great ideas around um what we could do here but then actually when you dial it back and go okay cool that's all wonderful and, and great but actually what is it that your undergraduates want or what is it that this segment you've identified want often it kind of falls down a little bit there and people will sort of arm and ah about it and go oh well I, we, we think we want we, we think they want this and we think they want it's like, well, actually, how, how do you know that? Have you, have you tested that? Have you sat down with your audience and, and, and asked them? Have you run focus groups? Have you run, you know, questionnaire surveys? There are myriad things you could be doing from a kind of user research point of view um, to make sure that you've got that stuff nailed down. Um, and often people kind of skip that step a little bit because they want to understandably get into the more kind of fun doing part, actually coming up with um, yeah. mechanics that, that allow us to, to serve content to those types in, in a really neat way. Um, and that, I guess, kind of feeds into another thing, which is um, going too complex too quickly. Um, we mentioned it right at the front. Universities tend to have lots of different audiences and you can kind of get very, very granular. You know, you could get as granular as saying, oh, you know, undergraduates that are interested in um, playing hockey and like this type of subject, that's one audience type. Undergraduates that uh, want to join the chess club that are interested in a completely different subject area, that's another user type very quickly you can spiral out of control and have you know literally hundreds of different users that you're trying to give very very granular levels of personalization to and one thing we strongly recommend is not doing that or or having that as an end goal is wonderful but starting at a very kind of simple level having some very kind of broad high level um segmentation so going as simple as saying undergraduate versus postgraduate that's a really really great place to start and then actually having a really solid understanding of, hey, what are the things that undergraduates typically want to see uh, compared to postgraduates? Uh, and, and by doing that, you can then, as we mentioned earlier, start implementing some really kind of nice, subtle elements of personalization. You can then test that stuff as well, see how effectively or otherwise it's actually helping users to kind of go down that funnel and, and go on that user journey. And then you can kind of constantly tweak and tweak and improve that as opposed to, yeah, getting very, very overwhelmed very quickly, which it's very easy to do with personalization. I, I think that's often something that's underestimated and, and probably what puts paid to probably like 80, 90% of, of personalization projects that I see out there are people that just go too complicated too quickly, get overwhelmed by it, um, and, and yeah, end up kind of consuming all of their time, um, doing these very, very complicated things. So yeah, keeping it simple, at least to begin with, would be my probably biggest piece of advice. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I think having a very, very strong understanding of your user types that you want to personalize to is, is another one. Don't, don't skip that step. It's a really important step. You've mentioned this in the past too, Julie, haven't you, around um, product developments. Uh, I, I know that testing is really important to you. And I think, you know, the going like full, full project from the beginning and not having that iterative approach is quite damaging sometimes, right? Uh, yeah. So the first version should never be the final version. 
Uh, you really want to go out, test, make sure you're building what your end users need and then iterate constantly. So get the data, keep iterating. And that's where AI can really help as well because you can get enormous amount of data out of some of these launches around how people are using it, qualitative and quantitative, and really being able to define the insights into to what you can do to improve that end user experience is really key. So I, I want to um, pull this into more, uh, almost hook it in with a commercial example, but then look at it through the higher education lens. Um, the other day I was looking, I think it was in The Guardian, and um, I came across an ad, so it, was, it was a massive one, a double page, and it was from TikTok. And it was saying, we value like team privacy, user privacy, all those sort of things that they're not known <laughs> for. Um, and whether the ad is like saying it's there for a reason, that we don't value these things, I'll, I'll leave it be up to you to judge. But it, it did make me think that because now we have a lot more legislation around the data we collect, um, we know that you know, cookies are going away. They're already well on the way out. GDPR is quite strong and there seems to be endless legislation coming out from the EU around AI and its use of uh, like data in those in those algorithms, algorithms and the content it produces. Um, in that context, what do you think, and how do you feel that um, institutions, uh, higher ed institutions, can balance the needs of user privacy with standout personalized experiences? Because if you look at something like Amazon, it's basically a massive data hoover, and the reason it's so effective is because it's using literally everything it knows about its customers. Um, how does um, higher eds who tend to be a little bit more um, data ethical, data conscious mm. um, play in that market? Because it's it's quite a competitive one and it's almost like the um, sector has one hand tied behind its back. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, I, I'm actually quite pleased we're moving to that cookie-less world. Um, mm. So tracking user behavior across every single site you go to, building up that persistent profile. It wasn't great for privacy. It really violates my uh, personalization without being creepy. Pretty terrible, it. right? <laughs> well, not great. So I'm, I'm quite pleased we're going there, but it does mean that uh, you need to make sure you're following all of the, the governance and regulations. Uh, there's a couple of different strategies you can really follow. Uh, so obviously the first one is that explicit user consent. So you always need to make, make sure that you're obtaining user consent for anything that you are gathering. So let your users know what data you're collecting and how that you're using it and make sure that you provide really clear explanations and give users the options to opt in or opt out of that data collection. So that's really key. I think most of the legislation really covers that. Uh, one thing that legislation doesn't cover, but is actually really important is that minimal data collection. So with data collection, less is more. There's this general trend I've seen across lots of different organizations, not just higher ed, where they collect everything, every single user interaction on the site, you know, how long their brand was on every single page. And most of it just sits there in a data warehouse somewhere, completely useless. But, you know, it's there just in case you might need it someday. But you probably won't. So you really need to focus, gather the data that's absolutely necessary for personalization if you think you might need it one day, just don't get it. Smart, small, grow slowly, measure effectiveness, and then you can get, get more data later if that's what you really need. But you want to really minimize and only capture the data, capture and store um, the data that you really, really need. Um, gathering every single piece of information um, is just a recipe for possible disaster. Another thing that you can really do is anonymize that data. So an effective way to personalize without invading privacy uh, is you can use anonymized or aggregated data. So these are those sort of segments instead of that individualized data. 
So you can identify general trends and preferences for things like, you know, what do your undergraduates actually want uh, without directly pinpointing individual users. So that's a lot safer as well. But it is really hard. Um, so, you know, as you said, it's not a level playing field. Uh, we've got Amazon, Zemi, all of the different sort of socials and, and e-commerce sites that collect everything about you and try and personalize it. Uh, but they don't always do a great job. I mean, Toby mentioned earlier the, the toilet um, story. So, you know, just because the, and again, that's really goes down to they're collecting every single thing, but they're not making sensible decisions about what data they actually need to help their end users make better decisions. So, you know, sure, they collected that you built one thing, you bought one thing once, but, you know, is it, you know, not, they're not categorizing it or using it really as effectively as they could be. So really it's all around what do you think you need for effective personalization? Just collect that with consent and then also, you know, make sure your security is top notch. Your minimal um, point there is quite a valid one. Um, the UK it isn't too bad at this. I mean, I, you know, a lot of forms during clearing, they ask for a lot of like a life history, basically. You know, it's not uncommon. But, you know, if you think that's bad, you should look at the US. I mean, if you want to get information out of an institution, um, they're now prospectuses over there. They call it information packs or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, lookbook, not lookbooks. I know what the word is, but... Essentially, if you want one of these things, like you, you're looking at some, it's huge. You, you just wouldn't believe the amount of data that these institutions collect. And the web mm -hmm. experience as a result isn't that much of a, an improvement. I mean, I've seen some personalized um, prospectuses in the, in, the, in the US and they're okay. You know, you know they, they do put in like unique, unique content that's relevant to a user, but the, the execution of the project just doesn't warrant the amount of data you need to sacrifice um, to get that result. Plus, you know, on the on the back end of these systems, and I've worked in organizations that, like you said, have collected everything about users, like how long they stay on web pages, what, what they do on them, and they don't use it, but it also actually slows down their CRMs and their website. So, you know, for the sake of collecting all this data they're not using, they are actually destroying live user experiences and sometimes that connection isn't isn't made between you know the two so yeah ethically it's a bit of an issue but also practically for your users it's a bit of an issue too yeah no definitely that minimum collection of data i mean it's i've had to sort of fight that urge in myself you know you're releasing a new product or something and you want to know everything about how anyone could be using it it's like well what are you going to do with that information like it, what, what, you know, and so it's really about that effective personalization. There, there's a level of personalization you can do that, that really helps your end users get to their goal. It helps you meet the business objectives. It helps them meet their objectives. Everyone's happy. And then there's a whole lot of extra stuff you could do where you're putting a ton of effort into collecting data, cleaning data, doing, trying to get all those insights out, but it's moving the needle this much, but you're spending this much time and effort on it. So it's really around what is that minimum effective personalization, the use cases, the user journey, what, where do you get the most uh, outcome for the time that you're spending and the time that your users are spending? And that's that magic. That's the magic there. Toby, let's um, you know, bring, bring this home and look to a more of a, a forward view here over the next five years. Um, the, the landscape looks like it's going to get more and more legislated. I don't think we're going to lose legislation. Um, if anything, I think I read an article a week about some new AI act or you know, some new data protection policies coming into to force. You know, I think uh, all of this is catching up with us uh, somewhat. So 
if you were to take like a a bit of an extended lens and you know you prioritize the action that um ATI should be should be taken in this space what do you think are those sort of go-to areas that not that we should be concerned about but what we should put in emphasis on when we're working on personalization efforts and maybe a review to the next three to five years rather than necessarily immediate responses and actions we get as a result of putting these into place yeah it's a it's a really interesting one isn't it i think um it's kind of tough to know exactly where particularly ai is going to take things but i think it's it's both kind of frightening and exciting and and i like to kind of err on the side of exciting because i'm because i'm optimistic um but I think one of the biggest things we're going to see, which I'm particularly excited about, as I have a kind of a, a background in, in user research um, and, and st still spend a lot of my time sitting down with kind of our customers, customers to understand about user needs and, and what people actually want. I think that AI is going to become very, very helpful with, with, with that type of thing. So typically user experience can be quite time consuming. It can be quite uh, expensive. Um, if we look at, say, you know, running interviews, for example, it would be wonderful to sit down and, and interview thousands of, of students, historical students, graduates, everything in between. And if you did that and took the time to do that, you'd get some incredible data out of it and some really solid kind of understanding. But of course, that's not a practical thing to do because it would take uh, months, years, uh, decades, um, and it would be very, very expensive and nobody wants to pay for that, understandably. Um, but I think what AI will be able to do, it'll be able to do that stuff, or at least um, aid that stuff, you know, in, in seconds, kind of click of the finger stuff, it'll be able to look at decades worth of, of data, particularly kind of uh, quantitative stuff, um, looking at things like Google Analytics, um, data that you can kind of pull from your site um, to look at how people are interacting with it in an, anon in an anonymized way. This doesn't have to kind of be um, looking at individuals data. But actually, if you can do that over the span of decades worth of data, you can then start, I think, to see patterns emerging. And these are kind of patterns yeah. that human beings just can't really spot because they're not kind of attuned to be able to deal with that much data. Um, and when you've got that much data, you've obviously got a really kind of good, good sample size to look at. And that has some really good application, I think. And, and to maybe kind of give an example, and this might be a bit of a, a rubbish example, but at a very simple level, if... AI can say, right, okay, over the course of 20 years worth of data, we can see that when a user comes to our site um, and looks at, let's say, these five pages in this particular order, they have a 30% um, increase in their likelihood to apply or enroll or to convert. That would be in like an absolutely golden nugget to understand, which that's going to be very, very difficult to kind of um, actually prove that if you're sat in, you know, even if, say, 10 interviewees tell you that that's the case, 10 is not a very good sample size. That could just be, you know, a, an anomaly or, or a bit of luck, or you have yeah. to pick 10 people. If you're looking at 10 years worth of data, then that becomes very profound and very compelling. And I think, yeah, what AI will be very good at is being able to kind of spot those trends and spot those patterns. And if we can then do something with that and, and kind of uh, package that up in a way that AI can help us essentially generate the insights that then human beings can add them to implement really great personalization with that with that stuff. That to me, I think is, that, that's at least where I hope things are going. I, I do totally accept that there are probably going to be some nefarious things going on, uh, but also some very cool things as well going on. Um, yeah. And I think the legislation is going to have to be there and be strong to, to kind of stop that being super, super creepy. As, as Julie mentioned, we, we don't want creepy personalization. We want stuff to be, be useful. And I think also just to dial it back, 
typically when we talk to students, and I think there's loads of stats out there that show that if you're actually very transparent with, with what you're doing with a user's data and you're not doing nefarious things with it and you're not storing data that you don't need to store, people generally are quite happy to part with their data if they understand what that value exchange is and they understand that what they're getting for it is, is good and they're getting better experiences as, as a result. And yeah, just being transparent about that is, is absolutely the way forward, I think. Um, so yeah, to, to kind of summarize, my, my hope is that AI is very much a kind of an, an enhancer to the process of personalization. Um, but yeah, I do, do appreciate that there's going to be some incredible advances in it. And as is always the case, people tend to, you know, <laughs> use it in certain nefarious ways and there will need to be legislation that, that kind of prevents that uh, from happening. You, you made a really good point there. So, um. I read a report recently from HubSpot that identified that the number one way marketers are using AI is not to create content, it's actually for research. Um, and there's not a lot of content actually published around that. You know, when you go on LinkedIn, all the kind of AI focused stuff is around you know, content creation, production. It's, it's, there's no, there's no sort of niche right now or creator or, you know, organization exploring the research element Like what prompts do you put in? How do you use these tools to get the, the maximum, um, uh, benefit out of the, the data that you've got. And you are right. Like you can use chat GPT or a whole range of like AI tools to, you know, share anomalized data and, mm -hmm. and get that insight very, very quickly that would take a human a long time to understand. Um, you can even layer of the. The, uh, the qualitative stuff as well. So if you wanted to add in like years worth of like interviews and stuff you've done with students to get sentiment, you can put that over the the top of it to get that extra layer of in, insight. So like you, I mean, yes, there are ethical implications and there are some bad actors and there's a lot of those stories uh, coming through. There's some particularly entertaining and concerning ones uh, around at the moment. But I think overall that the the ability and the extension this technology gives us is, is wonderful. And, you know, there's only like, room for growth. You know, we know chat GPT is now actually crawling websites. It's got a new, um, a bot similar to Google bot going on now. So it actually has the potential to have the macro context put into your, your data as, as well. So yeah, I think the research angle is a really strong one. Um, you're not using technology itself to have personalized conversations, but actually use it to inform personalization as an action right uh, absolutely yeah and, and i don't doubt that we'll probably get to that at one point where hey, you'll be able to type into chat gbt hey like um give me some great examples to personalize my website using using all this data and in 30 seconds it'll kick out a load of a really interesting stuff um i do like weirdly maybe a bit of a purist like i i kind of feel personally that lightly takes away the fun of the kind of creativity of doing personalization um like i love the idea of getting a load of help with making sense of data and spotting patterns and yeah and then being able to use that to do cool stuff that's where i think the real the real fun is and and i do hope that we don't get to a, a situation where everything is a little bit kind of sanitized and we're getting getting chat gbt and, and other various other ai things to kind of do the creative work for us i i hope we don't get to that point um but yeah it's going to be super super interesting to see um the the legislature legislative stuff in general is an, is an interesting one when we look at for example the the kind of eu um sort of privacy directive when it came to, to third-party cookies even though actually it's a really good directive i don't actually think it's policed particularly well you know you still on a daily basis i encounter sites where 
um, if you reject a bunch of cookies on a site, the site actually becomes unworkable, um, or actually they won't even let you access a site unless you click on, you know, accept all cookies, which actually is illegal based on the, the legislation. But at the moment, I don't think it's policed particularly well, which doesn't bode sort of brilliantly, I suppose, for, for other legislation coming in. It's like, you know, if we can't get that right, are we going to get this other stuff right? And so I do think maybe there's going to need to be an element of slightly better policing of it as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of, I, I don't think I'll be holding my breath, I guess, uh, certainly in the initial kind of uh, days of it, where I think we'll have kind of stuff that comes out, which maybe isn't particularly well kind of um, well policed. That's not to say we should be looking at ways to kind of contravene it. We absolutely shouldn't. Um, mm. But yeah, I, th- I think my, my, my overall point would be I'm super excited about the prospects of, of AI doing wonderful things for us in terms of research and, and being able to generate those insights for us that actually that's what leads to the brilliant personalization. We, we talked about it a little bit earlier. People often like to skip that step, perhaps having AI in there to help kind of um, not necessarily do it for us per se, but to make it a hell of a lot easier. Uh, that makes the whole thing a, a little bit more palatable um, and, uh, and less easy to ignore, I suppose. It's interesting your point about the the policing of it. You, you know, when you practically lay out like that, it, it is almost impossible for one entity to police the, the internet. Um, well, it is impossible. Though they tend to go after, after the, the big organizations, don't they? Making examples of them, it gets media coverage, and that's how the, you know, the not the myth of uh, legislation exists, but the the threat of legislation actually holds a, a bit of bit of weight. Um, thank you both very much for joining me this morning. Um, it's been really good actually to look at personalization from slightly different lenses and expand our understanding of it and it's especially around the research area and using ai to inform that um that conversation and that discussion um where can people get in touch with you what's the best way to to reach out uh for me uh my email address is uh i've got a bit of a, a, a pain in the bum surname it's uh so my email address is tmargets at squiz.co.uk margets is m-a-r-g-e-t-t-s um yeah best place to get me is uh is there tmargets at squiz.co.uk great and you julie Oh, I'll go simpler. So if you just do ask at squiz.net and if you can't figure out how to spell Toby's name, I'll forward it to you. <laughs> I'll stitch myself up there massively. Yeah.